0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The meat supply chain was on the hot seat in Washington this week.
0: There's something seriously wrong here.
1: Two hearings as the Senate grilled meat packers with anti-competitive claims. As disaster continues to strike in the West, funding makes its way through committee. It's a pest taking over hay and farm fields across the south.
2: I can just tell you right now that this fall army worm outbreak is the worst I've seen in my career. The true cost of
1: insects in the unspoken truth about pests. And in John's world, it's all China's fault. Now for the news, the meatpacking industry in the hot seat on Capitol Hill this week as senators took turns asking questions of producers and the meat industry itself about what many see as a lack of competition in the industry. This hearing happened before the Senate Judiciary Committee called Beefing Up Competition examining America's food supply chain. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa voiced his concerns about what he says are big companies that wield much of the control in the livestock processing industry.
3: It is taking six days worth of processing to get five days worth of cattle harvested and processed. So in a sense, our teams are working six days a week, virtually every week right now, to work through five days worth of harvest, our cattle that are harvested. We can out out harvest, But we can't get them processed.
1: We're going to have much more from this hearing coming up in our Farm Journal reports. EPA says it's moving forward with its effort to create what it calls a durable waters of the U.S. rule. And in order to do so, it's reverting back to the pre-Obama era rule to use as a foundation. Now, EPA says starting in August, it will engage with stakeholders to get input on how the rule should read. EPA says that will happen with public meetings and groups will have a chance to submit suggestions verbally and through written input. For more details on the planned meetings, including dates and times, visit agweb.com. Well, the Senate is also starting work on a nearly $1 trillion national infrastructure package. The vote to start the process coming quickly earlier this week after President Biden and a bipartisan group of senators reached an agreement on a key part of the plan. The legislation focuses on funding for roads, bridges and broadband. Now, here are some of the key areas slated for funding. $110 billion in new funds for roads, bridges and major projects, $73 billion for the electric grid, $66 billion for rail and $65 billion for broadband. Clinton Griffiths spoke with the transportation secretary about the plan, and he calls the agreement a very big moment for the White House as well as America
0: thousands of the bridges that are in poor condition in this country. They're in rural areas where uh, for something like an emergency vehicle to say nothing of, of shipments, if that bridge or road goes out, that's got serious consequences for families and communities. It's part of why I'm proud to see over $100 billion for roads, bridges, and major projects, and the biggest dedicated investment in bridges since the Eisenhower era when the interstate system was set up in the first place.
1: The White House says the funding for the plan will come partially from unspent emergency relief funds, targeted corporate user fees as well as tax enforcement on cryptocurrencies. But the process ahead could take days in the Senate, and it's not clear if enough senators will eventually support that final passage. Well, a big announcement from Bayer this week about the future of its Roundup and related products. The company is saying it will replace its glyphosate-based products sold in the U.S. residential lawn and garden market with new formulations. That's starting in 2023. The announcement coming as Bayer works to close the door on litigation regarding Roundup. Roundup has been in the subject of more than 125,000 lawsuits brought by users who claim the weed killer caused their cancers. Bayer now setting aside an additional 4.5 billion dollars to cover potential future claims from plaintiffs. It's also awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court that will decide the path to closure of the lawsuits. The company says the move is being made exclusively to manage the litigation risk and not out of safety concerns. Bayer has continued to say glyphosate is safe when used according to the label. The decision will not affect its products for the ag industry. And the battle over African swine fever appears far from over after another country is reporting cases of the virus. USDA confirming the disease in the Dominican Republic. It says it was found in samples from pig via cooperative surveillance program. As a result, the Department of Homeland Security's Customs and Border Protection says it is, quote, increasing inspections of flights from the Dominican Republic to ensure travelers do not bring prohibited products into the U.S., USDA says it has offered additional testing support and will consult to the country. It has offered similar help to Haiti, which shares a border with the Dominican Republic. Well, Congress is starting the process to help farmers and ranchers impacted by drought and heat this year. The House Ag Committee passing a reformed WIP plus ag disaster bill. It authorizes up to $8.5 billion for eligible 2020 and 2021 disasters. Now, it would cover losses caused by drought, high winds, excessive heat, as well as polar vortexes. It would also cover power outages, losses to wine grapes impacted by smoke, and allow direct payments to sugar and dairy cooperatives for losses. That includes milk dumping that affect an entire co-op. Now, payment caps would generally be limited to $250,000 per person. Farm Journal Washington analyst Jim Wiesmeyer saying the measure is expected to be linked to a must-pass bill later this year. Speaking of drought, USDA says only 9% of the spring wheat crop is rated good to excellent across the country. 66% is rated poor to very poor. The last time spring wheat conditions were this low was back in 1988. Well, a break from the excessive heat is on tap for some portions of the country, while others could continue to bake. We'll break it all down for you in the forecast next. Time now with 4 Weather with meteorologist Mike Kaufman. Well, Mike, heat is expected in July, but the heat this past week has been ruthless And some of our viewers. I know we're getting a break, but not everyone. Right, Mike?
4: Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, you're right. The Great Lakes in the Northeast, especially, are seeing big time relief from the heat. Uh, Other places surrounding it are seeing a little bit, as we'll get to coming up. Still very dry. Root zone moisture has uh, actually dried off a little bit over the last week, unfortunately over parts of the northern plains it hasn't uh, looked quite as wet even though it's still very wet for the southern mississippi valley even central sections and parts of the great lakes but those uh, areas have dried off slightly in the latest one you can see the dry areas from pennsylvania through new england and then of course the west except for arizona new mexico which some areas have turned pretty wet and that's showing up in the drought monitor it's not as red as it has been for basically the last six months over uh, most of New Mexico and Arizona. Still lots of red though, so that means extreme to a, a, exceptional drought for much of the Intermountain West into the California area, parts of the Northern Rockies as well. But we have seen some pockets uh, improving and uh, a little bit of that in the Northern Plains and also the pacific northwest so we'll be keeping an eye on that for you but that's really not as bad as i could have seen it becoming this year i will admit i was a little worried about it spreading farther to the east than it has and it's actually shrunk up and pushed back west in some places so the jet stream look at this big trough my goodness as we head into august here we're going to see some really cool air for the great lakes in the northeast very comfortable air obviously and some of that stretches all the way down into the southeastern portions of the country but the ridge remains right through the rockies Uh, our model is trying to show a trough out west there, trying to come into the pacific northwest we'll see if it makes it or not either way look at that almost polar vortex look (laughs) to the northern portions of the uh, canada as you can see there but obviously it's august we don't have to worry about that but that's got some cool air with it and that may be ascending some more as we head into the uh, middle of the month and in fact it's trying to as we head toward next weekend. Taking a look at the uh, week uh, day by day. Spotty shower, scattered showers and thunderstorms along the stationary front in the southeast. A Little bit of rain shower activity in the northeast. Hit and miss afternoon stuff in the west. Other than that, this is cool to mild air, dominating most of the northeast quadrant of the country. By Wednesday, then, there's just not a lot of moisture around this week. We're not going to see as much rain as we've seen recently. Scattered thunderstorms in the southeast and the southwest, and that kind of continues as we head into a Friday. A weak system coming through the northern portions of the Rockies, though, as you can see. So August temperatures, I'm going above normal. Most of the plains, most of the west, northeast, below normal southern Mississippi valley below normal for central to southern mississippi valley for september but warm other than that around it and look at october looks like a pretty warm october except near normal in the southeast precipitation gulf coast east coast above normal below normal unfortunately in those areas that are already dry tyne
1: well all that heat could it impact crop production this year we'll talk about it in our marketing roundtables next Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, as you just heard in the weather, some areas of the country will see a reprieve from this heat. Others, not so much. Brian, I mean, when you look at the market action this past week, is it still all about the weather?
3: Well, weather is the primary driver right now. I don't think there's, you know, that any time you're into late July, early August, uh, that that's the case. And, and that's still the case. Uh, there are some other factors involved, and, and that's demand and or lack thereof, on, especially on corn. Um, you know, we're looking at old crop uh, ending or corn exports uh, not coming in where USDA anticipated they would, and I think that they'll have to make a downward uh, adjustment in August. Uh, soybean exports, uh, you know, may have to make a, an adjustment there as well, but uh, Uh, We'll see. Uh, The the crop year probably isn't finishing up as strong in the export campaign as what uh, USD had previously anticipated.
1: Yeah, Drew, on Thursday, we saw some cancellations from China when it comes to corn, yet we still were able to post some green in the morning on Thursday. So how were we able to trump kind of some some bad news when it came to exports, as Brian alluded to?
5: Sure. Yeah. If if you look at uh, the overall structure of the market right now, I think that uh, everybody is focused on the weather, right? And, and uh, most, um, most models are pointing towards a ridge in uh, the beginning of August. Now, I know it cools off here for the next five, seven days across the Midwest, but, but really that focal point is, is weather, and it is on that, that ridge that they're calling for. It's just a matter of where it kind of pans out and where it moves over the next, um, you know, uh, seven to, to ten days, really.
1: Yeah, Brian, I mean, you're preparing for Pro Farmer Crop Tour. It's always a highly watched tour, but especially this year. I mean, you're not going to get into a lot of those drought stricken areas. But what do you want to see on Crop Tour? What are you watching when we're hearing that Iowa could be setting on a pretty big corn crop this year?
3: Well, keep in mind, USDA no longer does its August objective yield uh, um, surveys, uh, so they don't go out into the fields in in the 10 objective yield states and, and pull samples. Uh, So the pro farmer samples will be the first uh, ground truthing samples. And and so the the market is going to pay attention to that. Uh, I think that corn ear counts are going to be vital. Uh, Soybean pod counts, uh, those will be the the key numbers. So uh, what are the the populations that are out there that we find on crop tour in the third week of August?
1: Yeah, and when you mention crop conditions in areas like Minnesota, I mean, we're seeing the worst soybean conditions since 2003. Brian, do crop condition ratings matter in the overall picture to the trade?
3: Well, uh, they do because they give you a guideline. I think the best means of of, uh, looking at crop conditions is the trend. And and what have we done? Well, uh, at the beginning of the growing season, we were higher than where we are now. So we've seen a a decline in corn and soybean crops. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody out there. It's just a a matter of how you calculate it out. Is it a percentage decline? Uh, You know, can you extrapolate the condition numbers? To a yield,
1: Kendra, yeah, as we get into the fields, as we see more ground truthing of crop conditions as well as USDA numbers, what do you think would be a surprise to the trade at this point when it comes to both corn and soybeans?
5: Sure, yeah, you know we're, we're tampering our, our yield in-house uh, down slightly uh, to a one seventy seven point nine. You know, if you look at uh, a lot of the geospatial uh, data ranges, they're they're anywhere from a one seventy five up to a one eighty three. Um, the, the big surprise for corn, I think is if, uh, you know, we, we came in under a, a 175, 174. That just keeps the bounce sheet very, very tight. Um, you know, and, and obviously looking at, at this year uh, being very tight, not quite as tight with cancellations from, from China here. But, um, you know, we, uh, the market um, essentially uh, needs, needs to feel the bull market uh, here moving forward. So that's what the trade's focused on. Um, from a soybean side, um, you know, anything under probably 49 probably gets the trade excitable. Um, similar similar um, type of data coming out right now most of them the trade are 49 to, to 52 and you know there's, there's a lot of uh, time and uh, and weather to get through on the soybean side right um, so that's that's what the trades going to be focused on that and, and what the forecast look like looks like um, if we get some timely rains in, in August uh, I think that that certainly um, you know increases some of those soybean yield expectations
1: yeah well if USDA does have to revise its estimates when it comes to To the export picture down a tad. What does that mean? What what do we need on the production side in order to still support this market? We will talk to Brian Grady about that later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, U.S. and Chinese diplomats met face-to-face with the high-level talks wrapping up earlier this week. The talks were tense, with China describing the relationship as a stalemate China blamed the U.S. while U.S. leaders pressed on topics like climate, human rights, and cybersecurity. But the complicated relationship with China is nothing new. Here's John Phipps.
6: Recently, reporters at the political website Politico offered this ominous observation Chinese firms have expanded their presence in American agriculture over the last decade by snapping up farmland and purchasing major agribusinesses like pork, giant, uh, pork processing giant. Smithfield Foods. By the start of 2020, Chinese owners controlled about 192,000 agriculture acres in the U.S., worth about $1.9 billion, including land used for farming, ranching and forestry, according to the Agriculture Department. This is simply embarrassingly bad reportage. While 192,000 acres seems like a big number, it begs for some context. Digging down into the source report from the ERS, we discovered that while Chinese investors, not their government, have increased their ag holdings, the majority is other agricultural land. Now, I tried semi-hard to find a definition for this category, and the best I can tell you is what it isn't, cropland, pasture, or forest. Zooming in on cropland, which is what most of us farmers care about, Chinese investors own a measly 33,000 acres. But how about those Canadians, eh? Or compare China to Germany. Chinese-owned cropland numbers are roughly similar to Denmark, and I don't see Congress obsessed about a Viking raid. Foreign ownership of U.S. farmland, especially cropland, is trivial. And the Chinese ownership share of that foreign ownership is even more trivial. To be sure, when the Chinese investors bought Smithfield Foods, the largest American meatpacking company, eyebrows were raised but the check didn't bounce and shareholders seemed satisfied. Ask warriors to name any other agribusiness bought by the Chinese. The xenophobic fears of Chinese economic invasion in agriculture are unsupported by evidence. The congressional hysteria is merely another facet of what I think will become a steady drumbeat of anti-China rhetoric. Don't get me wrong, I find little to admire in Chinese government, although Under Hu Jintao's leadership before President Xi, rapid Chinese economic progress was kind of helping to counter the growing authoritarianism we see today. It has since become a more corrupt and oppressive regime. That said, I have considerable respect for the Chinese people who have gone from essentially no economy to a U.S. rival in my lifetime, despite their government. Chinese investors haven't stolen American agriculture. China is just becoming our go-to excuse for all our problems. Anti-China rhetoric sounds like what you say when the other team is a lot better than you anticipated.
1: Thanks, John, and I'm sure many of you have thoughts on that. You can email your thoughts to John Phipps. That's mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, Machine to Repeat, he has Tractor Tales this week. That happens in just two minutes.
6: Welcome back to Tractor Tales folks. This week we're gonna journey to the Pacific Northwest and check out a 1948 pony.
7: My wife likes to drive it because it's easy driving and uh, not too big and intimidating about a nine, ten horse tractor designed to replace a one horse or two horse farm. It uh, came with all kinds of implements. They're designed to go against the farm all cub, uh, John Deere H, that kind of thing. So this was restored by, by a retired guy up in uh, Anacortes uh, a few years back, and I, I got it from him. One that I used to drag the driveway with. I've got a 600 foot gravel driveway, so it uh, makes it kind of nice to pull a sled behind it to fill up all the potholes. When I got it, it was just like this. Yeah, he'd, he'd finished restoring it uh i've done a few things to clean up some of the stuff he didn't do quite right and uh, there's a few things left to go for example i don't know if you can see on camera but the uh, air intake on the carburetor uh, if you look under your friendly kitchen sink you're going to find that same piece of pipe so i need to find the real mccoy for that Uh, however that pipe looks pretty good the way it is so i'm I'm not in panic mode to find the the correct one these are the kind of things that wind up in the back of somebody's garage or somebody's barn and they forget they've got it. I don't have any appliances for it. Uh, I mean, it's got the setup for the cultivators and stuff like that. I wouldn't mind having some when I show tractors. I kind of like to show them with something on them so that people can see, you know. Well, when they ask, what does a tractor do? You can say, well, right there, that's what it does.
1: Well, two hearings this week, both focused on the meat supply chain, but this time two of the four major meat packing companies testified and senators, they held nothing back. We'll show you the exchange next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: Well, as we reported at the top of the show, beefing up the supply chain was the focus of a Senate hearing in Washington this week. It actually marked the first time two of the four major meatpacking companies had a say since the legislators started looking into claims of anti-competitive practices in the cattle industry this year. Well, as Clinton Griffiths tells us this weekend in the Farm Journal report, things got heated.
0: From cow country to Capitol Hill, ranchers are being heard in the halls of Congress.
3: Since 1978, Iowa's lost more than 45,000 family farms that sold cattle. How many more family farmers and ranchers do we need to lose before we recognize the negative impacts of the highly concentrated meatpacking industry on our beef supply chain
0: and our rural communities? On Wednesday, a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee called beefing up competition, examining America's food supply chain brought all corners of the industry into the conversation.
4: How do you justify making such low bids when you're turning such a significant profit?
0: We
3: depend on independent cattle operations of all sizes, and we can't do without all of them. I don't know the the specific date you, you referenced in May, what we were doing in the marketplace that day versus another day, but what we pay Iowa cattle feeders truly depends on the market conditions but how they end up deciding to sell their cattle, whether they
0: want to negotiate or put them on an AMA, is totally up to them. The hearing, including representatives from JBS USA and Tyson Foods, it follows a June hearing in front of the Senate Ag Committee. At that time, leaders got input from cattle producers and industry groups about the supply chain, including consolidation and questions about transparency, but no one from the meat packing sector took part. This week, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa asking if the major processors wield too much control, adding that the number of cattle traded on the cash market in the 2000s was more than 50 percent. Today, it's closer to 20 percent.
4: Our independent producers who negotiate offered the same opportunities to market their cattle as larger corporate feedlots do through formula contracts and would you be opposed to having the base price premiums, and any discounts shared with the public.
3: We are active in the cash market every single day at JBS. Um, In fact, in the state of Iowa, we have uh, several buyers that are headquartered there. Um, Again, active participants, um, are they offered the same price? Yes, they are um, on a cash basis, on
8: a a day-in, day-out basis.
6: As we start to really get down to what we need uh, to, to fix some of these issues, to create more transparency in the marketplace, some of them might be
0: regulatory and, and might just require a rulemaking at USDA and don't need anything from Congress. Others might need a statutory change in order to be effective. Give me some specifics, uh, uh, some things that should be changed or can be changed or even addressed.
6: Well, I think one thing everybody's really focusing on is this cattle contract library and, and okay. getting getting a tool put together that producers can, can really use uh, to have a
3: better understanding of what might be available to them,
6: as well as. Um, some of the reporting requirements
3: and and trying to get a better set of information out of USDA on a regular
7: basis. And how about
0: breaking up some of these some of these Packers?
5: Look, we are all for shining a light, having a review and if necessary, break them up. If something is seriously wrong here and it
0: cannot go on as it currently is, And I, for one, think it's time to take that kind of action you were talking about, Mr. LaRue. I think we need antitrust enforcement, and I think we as a committee have got to look forward to some policy suggestions to change the balance. The North American Meat Institute submitting testimony to the hearing, saying that when it comes to talk about concentration in the industry, quote, the four-firm packer concentration ratio for fed cattle slaughter has not changed appreciably in more than 25 years, end quote. It also says claims that the Big Four control 85% of beef production in the U.S., is a misleading exaggeration. It says the number is more like 70%, and it continues to say market fundamentals drive the cattle and beef markets. Producers telling Congress they just want things to be fair.
3: Cattle producers deserve a a level playing field. We're asking for a transparent, competitive marketplace to strengthen the beef supply chain. Failure to take swift action leaves Congress, USD, and the DOJ culpable for the countless cattle producers that will be
0: starved out of the industry. For U.S. Farm Report, I'm Clinton Griffiths.
1: Thanks, Clinton. And we'll hit on the cash cattle trade conundrum. More in our marketing roundtables. That happens next. Back now with Brian Grady and Drew Moore. Brian, it was about this time last year that commodity prices took a turn. Once we we had the WASDE report in August, we had the derecho that just did some devastating damage in states like Iowa. Commodity prices kind of took a turn. We're at a different price level than we were this time last year. But is anything like that possibly brewing? Is the story similar at all?
3: Well, it, you know, if we get August weather the hot the and dry all the way through, obviously implications for both the corn and soybean crops, you'd be taking uh, yield off at that point in time. And, and then you tighten up the balance sheets. And, and we don't have a whole lot of cushion, hardly any at all. As we project out through the 21 22 marketing year anyway so if you start lopping off bushels in august uh now it is kind of a big deal and and uh the price would have to respond but i i think in december corn futures you've seen that at the moment five dollars is too cheap six dollars is a little bit rich and uh you know we, we continue to chop within that range on soybeans uh wider range obviously because a higher price uh, but you know 1480 is the contract high uh, November futures, that that's probably the top end mark for now, unless we get some sort of a weather event. And then on the downside, uh, you know, anything under like $13 is probably just too cheap at that point in time.
1: Well, Drew, I mean, hearing from Brian, it sounds like there is still some risk in this market. There's still some opportunity in this market. A lot of unknowns as we head into August. How does a farmer right now, as we look at, at harvest, as we look at some of these new crop bushels starting to come in, how does a farmer manage risk right now?
5: Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question, and and a question we actually get a, about every day, right? Um, if depending on if you have new crop sales on the books um, or even old crop, uh, but 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 certainly you know the the focal point is 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 the new crop, right? And this fall's harvest. And if you don't have any sales on the books, certainly would advise to get some some sales on the books. Um, you know, if you're uncovered on uh, on some other bushels, certainly would look at uh, buying some put options if you look at implied volatility over the last week, it's uh, decreased significantly. So if you're going to buy any type of options, uh, it looks a lot better today than it did um, at the beginning uh, of this week. Um, and then, you know, th- really an- another big question that, that we're getting as well is, is what do I do for, for uh, uh, fall of 2022? And, and, you know, that's that's kind of a, an odd question for this time of the year. But if you look at input costs um, for the next fall or fall of 2022, they're, they're about 70% higher year on year, depending on your geography. And so we want to look at some type of risk strategy, you know, whether it's buying puts or, or, you know, executing a a small increment of sales for next year, just to defend some of that, um, that risk that we see on the, the input side.
1: Brian, this week, Capitol Hill cattle prices definitely on center stage in one of the hearings, two of the four major meat packers were testifying. One of the senators pressed them on cash cattle markets. So there's a lot on the cattle side. And then on the pork side here, you know, we have the confirmation of ASF in the Dominican Republic. What type of, you know, obstacles or opportunities will we see with these livestock markets when we have these factors really moving right now?
3: Well, addressing the ASF first, uh, African swine fever, uh, the closer it gets to the United States, the, the more alarmed I, I think the market becomes. We saw the limit down performance uh, this past Wednesday and in, in October futures uh, on that news and and you know the market just gets skittish and, and I think that at the elevated prices we're at right now, while there may be more upside, uh there there's definite downside risk. On the cattle side of things, uh, you know, it, it's been a struggle in the cash market. And and that's what all the the hearings are about right now. Uh does the cash reflect the, the true situation in the marketplace? And I, I think that uh, you'll see more movement on that. And the market's definitely paying attention. We'll see what the response is from the packer in the cash market.
1: Drew and Brian, thank you so much for joining us this weekend for U.S. Farm Report. Well, we talked about grasshoppers invading fields. You've probably seen the pictures on social media. Well, in Arkansas, it's fall army worms that's demolishing some crops. We'll tell you about it when we come back on U.S. Farm Report.
0: The unspoken truth about pests on U.S. Farm Report. Brought to you by Agrishore Traits. Combine the power of Agrishore Duracade plus Agrishore Viptera trait stacks to control 16 yield-damaging above and below ground pests.
1: Well, fall army worms are taking over fields, hitting everything from soybeans to rice in Arkansas. But until Wednesday of this week, growers in the nation's leading rice-producing state only had one insecticide approved for use on armyworms and rice, a product armyworms are actually growing resistant to. That's why Friday, University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture filed documentation with EPA to allow for emergency use of a second product. And Wednesday, EPA granted that crisis exemption. But entomologists say the outbreak has already cost growers millions of dollars in losses. And this weekend, we cover the true costs of pests as we wrap up our series on the unspoken truth about pests. In the 40 years, Gus Lorenz has focused on pests.
2: This fall army worm outbreak is the worst I've seen in my career.
1: The fall army worm outbreak in Arkansas this year is one for the record books.
2: It's not just rice. It's they're also in beans. Really, really bad soybeans. Uh, we see a few in cotton. Uh, but they're in grain sorghum, uh, corn. It's from one end of the state to the other, all four directions. It's it's bad everywhere.
1: As Arkansas farmers and entomologists work to battle the pest, Loren says this year has been the perfect storm in the worst way.
2: We had the the June, May and June rains the floods that were so bad, devastating to our growers, and so they had to go back and replant a lot of that acreage. So we got a late crop
1: 15 inches of rain in a matter of days caused this, and as farmers worked to replant so late. It sparked another problem to sprout early. They don't
2: call it fall army worm for nothing. It usually strikes us late, but this year it, it started early. I've never seen so many fall army worms. Anywhere you go, There, everybody's got fall army worms.
1: It's a problem so potent this year, you don't have to walk or drive far to see it. There'll
8: just be stems out there in the field. Uh, in soybean fields, they just leave stems. It's kind of easy to spot out there.
1: Once the worms grow to an inch long, the damage can be devastating, especially in rice.
8: When you get around at Green
2: Ring and you start looking, you get around 20% defoliation, it can cost you anywhere from 15 to even up to 50% yield loss.
1: What can be even more detrimental is how the pest delays maturity.
2: So if they eat it down and it has to grow back it can delay maturity by up to 30 days. And that's the difference in making a crop a lot of times and
1: not. And in soybeans, the surge in army worm infestation can cause crop loss costs to add up quickly.
8: In soybeans, you know, vegetative stage soybeans, you know, yield losses a lot of times on late planted stuff, you know, range up to about 30, 35% yield loss from defoliation on those small soybeans. Now, you get later on in the growing season in reproductive soybeans, and it can be a lot higher than even that.
1: Thrash says the other issue in soybeans this year is an increase in wheat pressure.
8: Whenever it finally dries up enough to where the grower can make a herbicide application, you know, he kills the grass. Well, the army worms on the grass out there in the field, they move off onto those soybeans. And a lot of times those worms are already pretty good size. And that's when they do 90% of what they're going to eat in their whole lifetime is those last couple in stars. So they'll just eat them down to stems.
1: As farmers in Arkansas battle an army of worms, it's an issue Lorenz says could be coming for the Midwest next.
2: I think the folks up in the Midwest, you know, northern Missouri and up in... Indiana and Illinois, I think they'll all get a little taste of
1: this fall army worm before it's over with. Farm Journal agronomist Ken Ferry says the true cost of pest pressure really varies on insect.
3: We've seen corn board pressures that amount to 30, 40 bushel to the acre. and Talk about rootworm, it depends on whether the rootworm pressure is heavy enough and the corn goes down. If the corn's still standing, it might be 7 to 10 bushel. If corn goes down, it can be 30 to 40 bushels.
1: But he says the cost doesn't always come just from yield.
3: For instance, the issue of down corn, whether that be a a rootworm issue or maybe some corn borer issue, it slows down the harvest. So not only would it take away yields, it may double the amount of time in harvesting and the situation where that cost in the fall can be pretty expensive.
1: That's why agronomist Missy Bauer says timeliness is key. Because if you go out here and you're too late, you've already had too much damage, then we've given up too much yields. The lurking insects aren't just above ground, but below what the eye can see. They're feeding on those corn roots when you can't see what's going on. So unless you're digging up uh, the plants and doing some rootworm floats, you really have no idea what that pressure is like until they actually hatch, and now you got beetles clipping on the silks instead. But So it's those things below ground that I think we got to be cautious of. And for farmers in the South, The growing concern about pests this year aren't just with fall army worms, but plant bugs. We're
2: looking at maybe seven, eight, even nine applications to control this plant bug situation in cotton for a lot of our growers.
1: And in the quest to protect valuable bushels and pounds in fields, Lorenz says every detail counts. Now, entomologists say there are things you can do to help control pests from a production standpoint. That includes planting early and tightening row width, but that's not always practical or possible. All right, up next, the egg debate continues.
6: More thoughts about eggs.
1: Ago on the show, John Phipp said consumers will pay for preference and eggs are the example of that. Hill will he continues that debate this weekend in customer support.
6: My comments about specialty eggs a couple weeks ago and my inability to notice much difference brought some sharp replies. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with who's ever in charge that you would let John so totally embarrass himself, by saying something so ridiculous as once you crack the shell, all these eggs are pretty much the same. If you can't tell the difference in color, texture, and taste between free-range and factory eggs, then you probably ought to just shut up. You embarrass yourself and demean your program, and that's from PB, and a slightly more <laughs> diplomatic response from Tom Byer in Appleton, Wisconsin. I saw your segment on eggs this morning. I have to take issue with your thoughts. I buy my eggs from Full Circle Farm in Seymour, Wisconsin. The taste is far superior to any store-bought factory egg. If I buy eggs from other farms, I can tell the difference right away. Call me an egg snob. Well guys, thanks for writing. If you didn't, uh, send an address for your mug however this feedback simply reinforces my point about why consumers don't seem to have any problem paying four to nine times for specialty eggs many of us feel pretty strongly about our eggs i may have an unsophisticated palate but then i make scrambled eggs with about 50 percent milk to jan's horror tom you're not an egg snob you're a consumer making an informed choice my greater point here remains That in all the food issues we have scoffed at in my lifetime, from low-fat milk, gluten-free, HFCS, GMO, RBST, organic, and all the others, the ag community has reacted defensively, saying, we didn't do anything wrong. In our eyes, consumers were making, frankly, stupid choices. Cornering shoppers in the supermarket to tell our story flat out hasn't worked. Ridiculing tastes that we aren't prepared to satisfy because we like to do things in our own way is kind of bad for business. Above all, chanting the mantra of cheap food means little in a a nation that is getting plenty of calories. While specialty eggs may be taking over the retail market, remember that about a third of us egg production is exported or used as an ingredient and i am skeptical egg connoisseurs can tell what kind of egg is in a brownie or a meatloaf there will be a market for conventional egg production but like any other commodity it will not command premium prices and will be subject to withering competition
1: thanks john well you saw the army of army worms taking over fields in the south but it's the grasshopper infestation taking over fields in the north. And the pictures and the videos, you really do have to see to believe. We will show you next. Well, as we showed you on the show earlier this month, it's a scene you may see out of a movie. Grasshoppers are thriving this year in the north. Why? Well, the hot and dry weather, it's creating a breeding ground. Take a look at this video from our affiliate, KFYR, in North Dakota. The grasshoppers are destroying and damaging pasture grasses as well as crops.
3: You can see where my barley field is. I have 300 acres of barley and of haybet barley. And all you can see is, I mean, it's, it's, they have eaten it to the ground. There is nothing left.
1: Now, in a normal year, the rancher told KFYR he'd get 1,500 to 3,000 bales on a 1,000-acre field. This year, with the drought, the heat, and now grasshoppers, He's getting just 53. And North Dakota state experts say the worst may not be over as grasshopper feeding really doesn't peak until August. Wow, those pictures, unbelievable. All right, that does it for the show this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.